Morning, everyone. So one of the things that I've been really excited about for this year is we're trying something um, in each season of the life of our church, and we began this fall as we celebrated our 10-year anniversary, and we had some new vision for what the next 10 years could look like, is that um, on the simplest level, we are a community who are followers of Jesus, and that means not just arranging the mental furniture in our head to say we believe certain things about God, but actually walking in the way following Christ together. And so we began to say, what if, we, um, what if we had a couple of shared practices that we did every season together as a church um, to follow Jesus? There's many different ways that we can follow Jesus. There's many shared things that we do as a church. For instance, no one is allowed to sit in the first two rows <laughs> for fear of pastoral spit or flailing or, or some reason I'm not really even sure about. I'm not taking it personally. Um, I'm, I'm over that, but uh, so in, in the fall, we had two shared practices, and the way we were talking about them is sort of like one as an inhale practice that you can do every day that's just like a way to seek God. In the fall, it was to spend time in the Gospels every, every day at some point, morning or evening, and then, and then an outward expression, an exhale, love and action practice, and so um, we have two practices for Advent. We'll have two for Epiphany and Lent and all through the year. Um, that, that there's resources on the, on the website. We're going to be talking about them on Sunday. Um, but, but our hope is that there'll be a shared sense of uh, we're on this journey together. And think about like one year, two years goes by. Now we have this sort of bank of resources, of practices of following Jesus that we've all done together. And I think it'll be a pretty powerful thing. So you're going to hear us talking about a daily shared practice a lot. You're going to hear us talking about love and action practices a lot. And um, this morning, actually, before we read our teaching text, I want you to hear a quick story about someone in our community connecting with God um, through silence and solitude, which our daily spiritual practice for Advent is silence and solitude to kind of push back on the frenzy of the season in our, in our city, in our culture. And our love and action practice is generosity, even in a time where we need resources for ourselves and our story and our family. So please welcome Molly. She's going to share a little bit about how she's connected with God through silence and solitude, and then we'll have our teaching text. Thank you. Good morning. So seeking God in, uh, in solitude and silence has really transformed how I understand God completely. Um, it's really caused me to see how relational God is. At this point in my relationship with God, I just see that everything, everything, everything about God is all about relationship. Um, I think I knew this intellectually. If you kind of take a cursory look through the Bible... It's all about God breaking through, um, wanting to know and be known and love and, and be loved in return. So I think I knew this intellectually, but I didn't really know it in my own story um, and certainly not in the most intimate parts of my own story. Um, about 10 years ago, some friends invited me to what they called a soaking prayer evening. And this wasn't a very fancy thing. They actually had a really small rental house at the time and three little kids under the age of seven. Um, every Thursday night, about 7.30, they would invite about five or six of us over. They'd put their kids to bed early. Uh, and we would all kind of grab a space in their house. So it was a structured time, but kind of unstructured as well. So someone would be like sitting underneath the kitchen table. Someone else would be like laying out in the hall. And we'd all kind of grab our own little space. And they'd put on worship music for a whole hour. And we would really um, just sit there and listen. Um, listen for the spirit that's always present, but maybe that we don't uh, really make time to hear. 
Um, so I'm going to talk about one encounter I had during one of those evenings um, of soaking prayer. Um, so one evening I'm sitting there on the couch, and um, I was maybe 30 or 40 minutes into this kind of soaking or listening prayer experience. And I remember um, suddenly feeling above me this, um, this presence that uh, felt very warm and kind of enveloping, kind of warm and safe. Uh, and I remember sitting there on the couch and kind of just like tucking into it because it felt so kind of warm and safe and it was like over me. I remember thinking it kind of feels like a tent or like a hand. But I didn't really have a, a concept for it in my mind, but I could feel it. And I remember kind of looking up in my mind's eye and seeing something kind of warm and dark uh, kind of over me. It was a very, um, very visceral experience that I'll, I'll never forget. So for the, the rest of the evening, I just kind of sat there, kind of tucked under this warm, dark thing. Um, and as I got up to leave at the end of the evening, my friend Tara, who was hosting the evening, handed me a folded piece of paper, and she said, I was praying for you tonight. Um, you can take this with you. I said, thanks. So I took it and I uh, opened it in the car uh, and here's what it said. Um, it's gonna make me a little emotional. <laughs> I have the spiritual gift of crying, so it's totally normal. <laughs> I love you and thank you for loving me through the tears <laughs> if that happens. Whew, it's very personal. <laughs> Molly, is it prayed for you? <laughs> As I prayed for you, I saw you protected under a giant wing. It's God's wing. This is the passage of scripture that God led me to for you. It's Psalm 91, and it's all of it, but especially verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And what I love about this whole encounter, uh, that kind of strange 20-minute encounter, is just how multimodal it is, right? Um, if God wanted to just give me information, there are many more efficient ways God could have done that. And instead, there's kind of this strange, creative thing that happened where I'm sitting there having an experience with God that's very physical, right? Something that I can feel. And then... It also involves my friend, and she's sitting there praying for me, um, and she has a, like a vision of something, um, which is a special thing um, having to do with her relationship with God. And I get to wrap around with her the next day and say, oh my goodness, this beautiful note that you gave me actually matched this encounter that I was having, and that caused her faith to grow, right? And then I get a scripture on top of it that I can explore for years to come. And it's still not just about something that I'm supposed to learn. Um, it's something that God gave me that was a specific word for me. Um, it's God saying, I know where you're going. And in this next season, here's what I want to be for you. All of it is relational and creative and designed for, um, for us to explore our relationship together in a deeper way. Um, I guess that's my encouragement for you in this season as you work these practices into your own faith and your own faith story. Um, my encouragement to you is that it's worth it. Um, it's worth the wait. It's worth the silence. It's worth the awkwardness that sometimes you have to sit through. Um, 
it's worth it because of the greater love and the greater revelation that come with a deeper relationship with God. The teaching text today comes from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Molly, for sharing that. That was, that was tremendous and beautiful. And um, so many parts were encouraging to me. I like that. I've been in some settings like that where you're going to pray or sit quietly for an hour and just like the fidgety part of myself, you know, like wants to get up at about five minutes and then 10 minutes and then, but like that experience began at 40 minutes in, you know, just like the little bit of, of, of perseverance if the initial experience is not what you thought it might be is, is I think beautiful and important and um, <clears throat> Happy Advent, everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you. <clears throat> I'm feeling a touch under the weather, but I've medicated myself, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, a few times uh, in school when I had a history teacher uh, who really cared or maybe was really talented, um, they would be able to walk us through the rumblings that were going on in the world that would lead up to something like a war um, and in a really interesting way. You know, whether it was one of the world wars or the American Revolution, you could sort of, um, you know, picture what was going on and, um, you know, you'd sort of paint this picture, see these tensions that existed in the world because of some previous conflict between nations that would be involved in the next conflict or, or this economic hardship was exacerbated and that sort of fed into it or these political alliances changed for these reasons and you sort of start to see, oh, this is leading, this is leading to something. But they would be able to show the, the movement of these socio-political sort of tectonic plates um, that, that led right up to the moment where finally violence erupted, shots Shots were fired. Um, so there was this movement that took place before, and then, but there was also usually some inciting incident, some thing that took place, um, uh, an assassination or a, a riot or a skirmish, uh, which is a fantastic word, um, skirmish of some sort. And then the whole thing, the whole thing would begin. And um, and I was thinking about that this morning because 
what leapt out to me the first time I read this text in, in preparation was the, the, these words. Our text this morning begins, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And on one level, uh, that's how someone could describe the entire Bible up to this point. <laughs> This is sort of like a summary of everything that's happened up to, up to this point. Now, what we know the, the, the original writer means is the details that I'm about to share with you are the way that G, the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. But actually, if you've been tracking with the arc of the scripture up to this point, the whole story is how the birth of Jesus came about. The movement of the story, the sort of centuries of building promises and, and prophecies like the one we had last week about uh, you know, I, Isaiah in the middle of this like war torn exiled people, and, and Israel stands up in Jerusalem, besieged on all sides by invading armies, and he gives this prophecy of this baby that's going to be born, and it doesn't seem to make any sense, and yet somehow the whole thing has been building towards this, this moment where, where, where God is coming into the world in a particular way. So uh, if you want to say it this way, like the tectonic plates uh, of this redemptive ark have been moving the whole time towards this movement. The whole, the whole book is about the birth of Jesus the Messiah, from, from the story of the family with Abraham, uh, through, through, through Moses, through the house of David. We've been walking uh, before church on Sundays in this uh, How Long, O Lord, Advent course. Tyler's been walking a group of us through the consideration of all the moments of delay and disappointment and frustration. Advent is a season of waiting, and uh, we are a culture of instant gratification, and so it takes some discipline to wait. Uh, but we've been pressing into those moments in the story that in some, some way are all leading up to what happens in these gospel accounts of Jesus' life. What God has promised to do with and through Israel and the world is now coming to some sort of climactic point in, 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 its, uh, in its experience. So you have all these specific uh, details now that, that begin to crash in. We get the details about the lives of the people, right? And we're now through the preamble, and or, or you know, and it's, a, it's a, quite a preamble, but we're to the moments where the specific details of the lives of the people who are who are at this moment in history, at this inciting incident, are there when God is coming into the world in this unprecedented way. And honestly, Joseph, quite—I mean, he takes a little bit of a back seat in in the Christmas pageant, right? I mean, who remembers Joseph? It's Mary that we're looking to, and then rightfully so, right? She's like the first Christian, and like Jesus literally comes into her life. Um, and, uh, and yet, like, when I, when I can't, you know, like, this is one of the things, like, there's no formation without repetition. You come to these stories, like, if you want to know the toughest Toughest uh, part of being uh, be, being someone who speaks on these passages every year. Christmas and Easter are the years where everyone's like, "All right, we know exactly what you're going to say. How, how are you going to How are you going to say it in a different way this year?" And the reality is, like, every time we come to these stories, there's little layers that that like they that come out. You didn't notice this before. You didn't see it in this way, or. Or the person I am at this reading has changed so much that like it hits me uh, with a different way. And so Joseph's story, even though sometimes I just like never think about him really in the, in the Advent stories and the Christmas narrative. Um, today, uh, I want us to think for just a few minutes about how challenging a place he finds himself in this story is. I, I think it's a little bit easy to miss just how troubling it would have been to be Joseph. And the question that he, his story raises for me, this is seven verses. The question these seven verses raise for me is, what do you do when the wheels fall off your life and it's God? 
What do you do when the wheels fall off your life and it's God? What do you do when you look around and you find yourself in a landscape of tremendous disappointment? Because I'm gonna give you the, the first sentence one, one more time. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. For all of us, this is thrilling or at least somewhat interesting news. But then it goes on. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, <clears throat> she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. For Joseph, for all the framework he has of how the world works, this can only really mean pain and betrayal and humiliation. This is, this, is, uh, this, this is no real gospel here, no real euangelion, no real good news for Joseph as he discovers that the woman he's engaged to is pregnant. If you're engaged to be married to someone and it turns out that your fiance is pregnant and you have not slept together, that is bad news. There's no real option for you in that moment. Like, no, hang on a minute. This might not be so bad. Maybe God is up to something. <laughs> I think the only thing we can, we can uh, you know, if we're real, realistic, the only thing Joseph could have been feeling was absolutely betrayed. That someone that he had loved, that he had wanted, that he had chosen, had not chosen him. In fact, had chosen someone else. Now, I want to put this to you in the most personal ways. And I want you to stir up your imaginations and your memory with me this morning. Have you ever been betrayed? It's, it's one of the most unique, agonizing experiences of human life. There's a mixture of pain and anger and embarrassment or even humiliation that is hard to describe. It kind of drops on your soul like, like, a, like a, a drop of water on a sizzling pan. It just like, ah, it just, there's something about it. And, and I've had some examples of it, you know, late, later in my life, but it's, sometimes it's the first exp experience of something like betrayal that really burns you. And mine's a little bit like comic in my own memory, but I was 14, um, my parents sent me to a boarding school uh, during the summer, which was not exciting. I was what you call a behavioral problem. Um, uh, I was a little bit of a classic underachiever. I, um, and so my parents were uh, at my grandmother's behest and funding, decided what I needed was to spend the summer in school in a more strict environment than my regular school, which uh, actually backfired tremendously. Um, but uh, I left at home one of my first girlfriends in a tremendously agonizing and also poetic expression of my life as a 14-year-old. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wasn't some young private, you know, going off to war, writing letters on the train or something. But I was, I was going to this boarding school, and I was leaving behind this girl that I thought I really cared about. We'd been friends for a long time. I finally stirred up the internal courage to say, like, maybe we should go together. Do you remember that as an expression? Oh, wasn't it wonderful? Yes, no, or maybe. Anyway, she said yes. Um, so during the length of my stay, like, you know, the image of this woman, 14, back home, uh, kept me going through the trials and torments of my, of my boarding school experience during, during the summer, no less. I remember writing essays about Animal Farm. I had to read Animal Farm. George Orwell, on this, on this, uh, at this, at this boarding school, I had to write essays. I'm just like looking up, chewing on my pen, thinking about her. And uh, we would speak on the phone a bunch. I wrote, I wrote her letters on top of my essays about Animal Farm. I wrote her letters. A week or two before I came back, though, a couple of calls were harder to get through. 
She's a little bit different on the phone. I come home and I find out she's breaking up with me for one of my best friends, David Galloway. Look him up. I had a, you know, like just a little window into my life. I just traveled exclusively by bicycle in my neighborhood. I was coming up the hill towards my house, and David Galloway was coming down the hill. And I knew this man had betrayed me, this 14-year-old person. And I had such a dramatic moment. I threw my bike down, and I wasn't going to let him pass. I shove him. He gets off his bike, and we're standing there, and I'm just like, what have you done? He's like, we went bowling. This, there's something about it, though. Like, you, you, it, of course, like looking back, it's ridiculous. But like, it was everything to me in that moment. Like, my social, you know, like world was crumbling a little bit. And like these people, like we had all ridden the bus together every day. We all sat in the back and cracked jokes. And and and, and he knew that I liked her. And then like there was this pain, and there was this like humiliation, and there was this anger, and it was all obviously too much for me. So I was like challenging him to, uh, you know, violence to settle it. A few other times I've, I've, I've felt that, that, that betrayal. It's a burn of humiliation. It sort of sizzles on your, on your spirit. You ask yourselves questions like, have I loved this person more than they have loved me? And what does that mean about me? They've chosen someone else. What does that say about me? Of course, it doesn't only happen in romantic relationships. A family member or a close friend or a colleague chooses against you. They choose, they choose against being loyal to you. I thought we both viewed this relationship in a similar way, but it's clear now that you don't, and that is painful. I think one of the hardest questions that, that bangs around in your heart and mind in moments like this is, was I a fool? Was I a fool to trust? Was I a fool to be vulnerable? Was I a fool to give a part of, of, of myself to this person? And I just want you to know, like, I'm glad Joseph's story is in the Advent narratives because many of us have been betrayed. And I want you to know that God is not unaware of that unique mixture of pain and anger and embarrassment that comes with being betrayed. But here's our trouble, I think, with the Christmas stories a little bit, is that we know them so well, and so um, it's hard to concentrate on waiting or delayed gratification because we rush ahead to the end. We move to the verses when things become clear, and we make a mistake because for Joseph, uh, the, the first news of Christmas was devastating. For Joseph, the first announcement of the birth of the Messiah was devastating. Even though he had been hoping and longing for this on some level for much of his life, when the news finally comes, the way it comes to him is devastating. He is absolutely not lighting a candle of peace. You see it in the text, right? This detail, it sounds kind of noble, but there's a lot of pain in these words. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, so of course he would have been accept, expecting the birth of Messiah. He would have been expecting God to send an, uh, the next chapter in Israel's story to be a blessing to all the world, to have salvation spill over the banks of Israel, to all the nations, to, to, to fulfill the rightful place. It went all the way back to the promises of, uh, uh, that, he made, that God made, to, that Yahweh made to Abraham. But because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, 
public, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So what does that mean? Well, he didn't believe her. He didn't believe she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit because nobody gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Because what is the Holy Spirit? So I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a minute and ask yourself, what would it take to be comforted in that moment? How could really, how could your peace be restored? Now keep in mind, some of the other people in the Advent stories and in in leading up to Christmas, they, Zachariah and Mary, they get visions. Now visions are great. You're awake. Uh, a heavenly being in these instances comes and explains things to you, what's going on. It seems crazy. It seems like unprecedented. This has never happened before. You're right. Take a deep breath. Every time an angel shows up in a place, the first thing they say is do not be afraid because the only thing you would do if an angel showed up in this place was be afraid. These are like terrifying creatures on some, on some level and they, they show up and even, even waking visions with angelic beings explaining heavenly purposes for what seems like tremendously bizarre and unprecedented activity still is not enough on 100% of the time to allay or, or push back doubt and fear. Right? Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies ministering in the temple and the angel comes to him and it's still not enough. He comes out or he, 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 he's like, okay, thank you for coming, but exactly how's this going to work? And then he gets silenced for nine months or some amount of months. Zechariah and Mary have visions. Visions are great. Joseph gets a dream. I just want you to think, can you think of any of the dreams you've had this week? Listen, our dreams, right? You can be playing lacrosse with, with scoops of ice cream with Barack Obama in your dreams, right? Like, it's, what's happening in your dreams is, is crazy. It's, it's like all of the things in your subconscious are processing and they're all wacky and out of order. And, and how on earth can you trust a dream? And yet that's what Joseph gets, is that enough to restore your peace if you're in his situation? It's a significant dream. A messenger from heaven tells him that, in fact, he hasn't been betrayed. A relief, even if you're asleep. And in fact, God is doing something unprecedented in the world. God is coming into the story. God is plunging himself into our experience, plunging himself into history. That actually, this is not just a, another petty scandal to rock another family. This is something God is doing that's never been done before. And so we go on. After Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I find a lot of comfort in this little statistic. The most repeated phrase in the Advent narratives is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I find a lot of comfort in that because life is hard and sometimes life will make you afraid. I love what Frederick Buechner says. He says, this is life. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. This is life. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. 
The angel tells Joseph in his dream that what is happening is not a betrayal, but it's actually the work of God. And in what he says and in the names that he gives to God, in, in, in what he says, he, he says that what's coming through this situation that would have initially only brought doubt and grief and pain and betrayal to Joseph is actually bringing rescue and salvation and mercy and forgiveness to the world. And so now Joseph has a choice. Will he trust this, let's be honest, private, subjective encounter that if he trusted is still going to result in him enduring the scorn and humiliation of, of his family probably, of, of, his, of, of his social uh, ecosystem, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Joseph, really? You had a dream, you say? Or will he trust this revelation and believe that something unprecedented is happening, that God is breaking in in a way that is Never happened before. And I think, I just think a couple of the details are interesting. It says right when he woke up, he had to think about this. Think about your first thoughts when you wake up in the morning. Like, there's a little bit of a crucible that goes on in the first thoughts in our day. You make a decision about, like, am I going to listen to what's playing in my mind? Am I going to hang on to some promise? Like, I, he hasn't even had coffee yet. He hasn't gotten his feet on the floor. And he has to consider, am I going to risk my whole life on this dream that I've just had? The story goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded. When he woke, in the fog of those first thoughts, in all the disappointment and betrayal and the pain, he held on to this promise and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I mentioned it last week. This is two chapters before where we were last week in Isaiah. A centuries-old prophetic promise to Israel of Messiah given in a time of exile that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and basically because there had been so much delay and so much disappointment and so much exile and so much this has not happened yet, that all the scholars that read this text had made it figurative. This is not happening, right? This is the same thing we do with the Lord's return now. Like, it hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it's happening. Maybe it was just all metaphor anyway. Who knows? Let's try to be nice. And so they, had, they were not expecting the fulfillment of this prophetic uh, promise to be real whatsoever. But now Joseph is hearing, in the middle of this scandal, the virgin would conceive and bear a son called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this Jewish boy who we know believed the law would have been expecting God to move in some way, was hoping for this. And yet you don't really hope to be on the front lines of it happening necessarily. So Joseph has to wake up and decide if he'll trust this. And I want to say this. We let a candle of peace. Sometimes the first expression of peace is courage. Sometimes the first expression of peace is surrendering to love, surrendering to something bigger than yourself. It's trust when trust doesn't feel easy. 
I want you just to have a real realistic look for just a second at, for Joseph, what trust looked like, what surrender to these words looked like for him. It meant a couple of things. I'm gonna hit them very quickly as, as we move along. But for Joseph, this surrender that he's invited to in this moment when he first wakes up after this dream is an, is an invitation to radical trust. It's an invitation to sexual restraint. And it's, it's an invitation to profound humility. I wanna talk about each of those very quickly. So first, radical trust. What what does he have to do when he wakes up in the morning? He has to decide if he's willing to believe that God is is actually making good on his promises, a promise that many people had dismissed because of how ludicrous it was and how long ago it was given. Even as he knows to trust that means his reputation is going to be ruined. I want you to think about the tender human place in Joseph's soul, in your soul, where the crucible of trust actually gets played out. Basically, it comes to us in questions that ring with, will the deepest needs of my life really be met? Will the deepest needs of my life, not like superficial wants, not like you know just the longings, not just my Christmas list, will the deepest needs of my soul really be met? That's where this drama plays out. The drama of trust, the drama of faith, the drama of taking God at his word. Joseph faces, I think, the same challenges that you see faced in the garden in the very beginning that Jesus faces in the wilderness later in this very gospel. These are the same archetypal longings and needs that every human being faces. I have a little triangle that I, that I, that I draw for, for myself and for people when we're in counseling situations. We talk about like the reality of, of, of trying to get the deepest needs of your, of your life met, either by trusting in God through relational means, through love, or trying to meet those needs out of your own resources in some other way. And, and the, the, the things that surround the triangle at each point are our appetite our ambition, and our sense of approval. What do I do with the cravings and longings and appetites of my body and mind? What do I do with my my deep inner desire to be known and loved and accepted? What do I do with my desire to make a meaningful contribution in the world in some way for my work to matter? Do not hear me in any way diminish those. Those are the deepest needs of of, of your life or, or they're getting close to them. Right, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and what's our most basic, uh, you know, fundamental survival things are taken care of. What am I going to do with my appetites, my ambition, and my need for love, security, status, consumption, however you want to say it? And Joseph is, is, is faced with this. Can he believe and trust God with how he's going to be perceived If we don't sense the weight of that, we're probably not being very honest with ourselves. Radical trust about the deepest needs of his life being met in faith in a relationship that this God keeps promises and comes through and truly loves us and loves us in a gracious way. The second thing is sexual restraint, and and I think it's easy to gloss over this. But this is another expression of surrender and trust for Joseph. He has to show restraint of his appetites and longings. The day-to-day experience, right, we quickly move forward. Like months go by. We quickly move, move forward. How many times, right? Like this is a young man who's, who's, who's been preparing for marriage, right? He, and, and he finds out that his, his wife is pregnant. What, 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 what do you think ran through his mind? 
The day-to-day experience for him across all those months meant walking in self-control and his sexual appetites. It's another one of the deep needs of our life. Can I trust that if I go God's way to have this need met, that it really will be fulfilled and satisfied? Or if it's not exactly in the way that I expected, that it will still be meaningful and deep and true and even better than I could choose to meet out of my own resources? Can we really believe that with the way that we're marketed to, with the stories that we hear over and over again? Like, I, I'll be honest with you, sometimes like trusting God with a move or a career change or some big like life-altering narrative like that, where, where am I going to work? Who are my people going to be? Where am I going to live? That feels a lot easier to me than like daily controlling my longings, daily controlling lust. What do I do with this ache in my soul to feel close to someone? What do I do with this appetite that is repeating itself in my brain over and over again? Can I hold the promises of God next to that? Can I even replace this repeating thought with the promises of God? Radical trust, sexual restraint. The last is a profound humility. For Joseph, the the, the trust of Advent, it, it, it looks like a profound humility. He has to trust God with all of his future, and that means he's not in control of his own future in some significant way. He gives up he gives up the rights of his reputation. He gives up the rights in a sense of his longing and appetites, and he even gives up the right to name his own child. After all this, he doesn't even get to, 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 to name the kid. Like, I've been, I've been there four times now, right? Through all the processes, looking through the books, watching movies, listening to songs, trying to pick the exact perfect name. But the angel says that he's gonna be called Jesus. Naming is a big deal. And one of the, this is silly, but one, like a huge grace in my life, and this is, if this is close to your name, I'm so sorry, but I was almost called JR, and I'm very glad that I wasn't, because there's no chance I would have been avoid, able to avoid being called Junior basically my entire life, and, <clears throat> and it really matters to me because I like my name, but what happened was my dad was James Ralph, uh, James Ralph Clardy III, or no, I was gonna be James Ralph Clardy III, so there was already a James Ralph Clardy, my grandfather, and then my dad was James Ralph Clardy Jr., Jr. So um, I was gonna be James Ralph Clardy III, and I was like, could you call me Trip? That's cool, like triple, you know, like the third. Um, but they were gonna call me JR, and what saved me, because my dad was already Jim and my grandfather was Ralph, this is more information than you need, but I'm telling you because it's important to me and because my name is now Caleb and this is why. Um, in, in, the, in 1981, Dallas was this huge like late night soap opera show, and you know like there was a cliffhanger ending, one of the like, biggest cliffhanger endings in television history up to that point was who shot J.R. Ewing, right? Anybody remember that? Who watched that show? Be honest with yourselves. Thank you. Yes, we are getting some generational diversity in here. <laughs> and so my mom was like, I don't know about JR. It's like, it's a family name. How do you argue with that? I don't want him associated with this television program. My mom had issues with the morals on Dallas. She also didn't let me watch The Simpsons, but she did let me watch Roseanne, so I don't know. <laughs> Two weeks before I was born, they went to church and the the preacher preached on Caleb and Joshua, and they were spies, and they were sent with the 12 into, to spy out the promised land, and we, my family lived on this, basically this hill that in Greenville, South Carolina, we call a mountain, and, 
and it was Paris Mountain. My parents lived on it, and Caleb and Joshua were the only two who came back with a report in the promised land. They basically said that we can take these people if God is with us. Everyone else is like, it's absurd. We'll be overrun. There's no way we can do it. And they come back, and they say, we can with Yahweh's help. And J Caleb and Joshua end up being the only two of that group who get to go into the promised land. And when Caleb is allowed to choose the land for himself, he chooses the mountains. And I lived on Paris Mountain. You see the connection? And my mom was like, and it's not Dallas, so here we go. That's how I got my name. And that is silly on some level, but on many different levels over my life, I've gone back to that story, and it's meant something to me. It's meant something to me because it says Caleb followed God with his whole heart. That when he was 80, he hadn't lost any of his strength, and he followed God, and he still liked the mountains. That in ways that are too personal to even say, it puts some distance between me and my grandfather, who in lots of ways I did not respect or like, or, or his choices I want to be distant from. And so, like, and then later, who knew my, my like, main teammate colleague in life was going to be Joshua. So, whatever, I could go on. Um, <laughs> The name means a lot to me. Even though every year, I'm James Caleb Clardy. Every year I had to explain to the teachers, no, I go by my middle name. And they're like, really? I'm like, I do. And they're like, that's not a thing. <laughs> like, it is. My family did it to me. I want you to think about the names we've come to know of God so far in just these two weeks of Advent. A name means a lot. In the promises hundreds of years before this baby shows up, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now this baby is being born into real life, right from the beginning, into the inheritance of all of our scandals, all of our pain, into real betrayal. And the names we're given are Emmanuel and Jesus. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. At every point in the landscape of disappointment that you've been, God with us. At every crisis of longing for the deep needs of your life, will they really be met? Is there really care and love and covenant promise? In those searing moments, God with us. At every crucible of pain, in the fog of the morning, when you can't remember who you are or what's going on, Emmanuel, God with us. Advent is an opportunity to say, do I know God as Emmanuel? Not just mighty God, but God with us. But also Jesus, a name that means Savior. Because here's the thing. I want to believe in Emmanuel. I want to believe that God's with me, even in the, in the crucible of pain, in the, in, the, in, the, in the outbreak of scandal, in all the longings, however profound or petty they feel in my heart. I want to believe in, in, in Emmanuel, God with us, but I also need Jesus, Savior, because there's so many times where I choose my appetites or my ambition or my approval. I, I push God out and I say, I'll be my own God for a little while now, and I try to meet the deepest longings of my life out of my own resources. And a huge mess usually ensues, and so I need the rescue of a Jesus who would one day cry out on the cross to tell us die. 
It is finished. It is all dealt with. You are forgiven. You are healed. You are cleansed. I need God with us, but I also, if I'm going to have God with us, I have to have Jesus. When my faith fails, when I go my own way, when I'm in over my head. And so the question of Advent is, do you know God as Emmanuel? And do you know God as Savior, Jesus? I want to say to you, and not in just a I'm selling something preacher way, you can know both of those things today. The God who spoke to Molly in that house as they were listening, the God who shows up in the betrayal of this moment for Joseph, the God who spoke to this prolific and and sort of eccentric prophet all the way back at Isaiah, that same God that you've needed in different moments, that God is, is present in this middle school. Some, some of you, is present in your very soul. But either way, you can know God as Emmanuel and Savior today. The prayer of Advent is, come Lord Jesus. And I just wanna invite you so simply to pray that. Come Lord Jesus. Some of you have prayed it a million times. Pray it again. Someone might even be ready to pray something like that for the first time. Like you've been considering God, you've been thinking about this for a while, but you're ready to say, okay, (laughs) come Lord Jesus. If you're real, will you come and and go ahead and fill my life? I just pray for you that God would direct you in those, those two prayers, to know God as Emmanuel, to know God as Jesus, the Savior. Heavenly Father, will you come by your Holy Spirit into the real places of our lives? I thank you that this story does not gloss over what it is to be a human being and all its complexity and all of its sometimes agony and all of its trembling hope. That you speak peace to us in a way that is kind of unexpected at first, that looks upside down in the world we live in. But I thank you that you speak it to us nonetheless. I pray for each person who needs to know you, God, myself included, who needs to know you today as Emmanuel who needs to know you today as Jesus, the Savior, one who can embrace us, who knows what it is to walk the type of life we walk in. So lead us, Holy Spirit. Help us to pray with all of our might. Come, Lord Jesus. We do this by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.